If you like, you can turn in Psalm 119 to verse 137. We'll read the stanza beginning with 137. Nearing the end of Psalm 119. So we've been spending uh, the past months reading through this majestic psalm. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Thus far the reading of God's word. I ask you to join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon our sermon text. Father, it is a wonder to have uh, before us and uh, to have read and uh, proclaimed uh, the word which will uh, never fade away. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but your word remains forever. We give you thanks for this word, this deposit of wisdom. We give you thanks for the testimonies herein contained to your promises of old, their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that this lays before us for the future. Even now we ask that you would exalt your son as that most excellent and supreme display of your love unto undeserving sinners. And seeing him, Father, we might be built up in our faith. And we might abound in confidence towards you, Lord, resulting in lives of worship and readiness and service. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We can turn in the New Testament to Romans chapter 5. Continuing on in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we come to question 36. Read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll turn our attention to question 36. First, this is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. In question 36, asks, what are the benefits which in this life 
do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Amen. My wife Samantha looked at me the other day and asked me with full earnestness, do you love me? To which I promptly replied, I guess we'll see how the day goes. Thank you. (laughs) Thankfully that did not happen, but it serves the purpose of my introduction. It sounds patently ridiculous. What husband would respond to his wife's sincere desire to be assured of his love in such a foolish way? It was a bad answer. Thank you, Janet. (laughs) What parent would respond to their children seeking a similar assurance, a similar confirmation, affirmation, certainty of love? and security. One of the verses you'll find cited by the Puritan doctors of the heart. It's a great phrase. The Puritan doctors of the heart. One of the verses they love to cite to demonstrate God's desire that his people know that he loves them. Is Song of Songs 7, 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Thomas Brooks writes in his well-known treatise on assurance, heaven on earth. I know, says the spouse, that Jesus Christ is mine. I can with greatest confidence and boldness affirm it. He is my head, my husband, my Lord, my redeemer, my justifier, my savior, And I am his. I am his by purchase. I am his by conquest. I am his by donation. I am his by election. I am his by covenant. I am his by marriage. This I well know. And the knowledge thereof is my joy in life and my strength and crown in death should read the Puritans. (laughs) The attempts to throw doubt that have littered the course of church history or the questions of doubt that arise over the possibility of the assurance of God's love fundamentally misunderstand the nature of salvation. The concern of those who raise doubt over the possibility of being assured that indeed you are secure in the Father's love. That you are secure in the love of the Son. That you are secure in the love of the Spirit. The concern has always been that laxity will result if the people are secure. But the fact of the matter throughout Scripture is plain. We grow into what 
we are supposed to be out of a fundamental confidence in God's gratuitous love bestowed freely upon the undeserving in the Lord Jesus Christ received and enjoyed by faith alone. Though it is a faith that is never alone. It's true, there are dangers surrounding the doctrine of assurance. There are dangers surrounding every good gift. <laughs> Westminster Confession of Faith 18 plainly states that there are dangers when it comes to the doctrine of assurance. On the one hand, there's false assurance. The assurance that hypocrites would cling to as a reason to console themselves that indeed all is well with their soul. Closely related, this is the diabolical version of assurance, which is presumptuousness. Mark how similar those two things are, just in their first glance. Presumptuousness isn't known so much by the similarity of posture that you can see in it of repose, confidence. It's known by its poisonous fruit, namely pride and indifference towards sin. But the plain testimony of Scripture is, and the plain testimony in Reformed theology is, God delights when His children are sure of the Father's unwavering love. Our husband delights when his wife abounds in confidence and trust in his love. For her on display in the entirety of who he is and what he has done. God's word gives us all manner of instruction regarding the certainty of this love extended towards sinner, but also how we can be sure that we are partakers of it. And also a promise for a spiritual confirmation. In our hearts that is divinely wrought by the Spirit. Saying indeed you are in the Father's love. You are partakers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But first I want to point out how the question starts off by saying all of these blessings. There's five blessings here. All of them accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. Assurance of love. Peace of conscience, joy in the spirit, increase and grace, perseverance to the end. These are not something completely apart from the essential blessings of justification, adoption, and sanctification. Rather, these five are intimately related to them. They accompany or flow from these jewels, these gifts. Which God gives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some of this is obvious. Take our consideration of God's love for instance. Last week we meditated on adoption. And we marked the awe that the Apostle John had. That he exclaims in 1 John 3. What other worldly love is this? That we should be called children of God. And we are. What's he looking at there? He's looking at the wonder of our adoption in the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonder that the Father would take those who by virtue of their fallen state are enemies and call them children. 
The wonder that he would provide everything necessary for that to take place, not as a fiction, but in fact. In fact, so plain is it to John, he insists on it twice. He says, we're called children of God. Yes, yes we are. <laughs> what wonders of this is that we should be called children of God. And, and we are. I don't know if you believe it the first time, but in case you didn't, we are. That's true. But what conclusion does he draw holding up this precious gift of adoption? He's looking at adoption, and then he says, what wonderful love. What otherworldly love. The assurance of love, the, the impression of love comes as he gazes upon the gift, the particular gift that was granted to him in adoption, indeed granted to us in adoption. We can make the point that's well worn in our circles. Theology isn't arid and empty. We make careful distinctions in doctrine. We make very precise claims in doctrine. We ensure that our doctrine is rooted in the word of God, not to puff up intellects, but to console hearts, to supply with a truth that can bear the weight of a life. Study your justification. Memorize the question. <laughs> start there. What's wrong with that? Just start with the nuts and bolts. And then you have it. And then you'll find yourself reading God's word. And the spirit will layer richness after richness over it. And you'll find a treasure welling up. Where others see an arid wasteland of Protestant scholasticism. We see a treasure a treasure of truth and truth's closest bedfellow, love. I commend to you studying the excellencies of the gifts in their particulars. We can make this observation that the, the five blessings here are sort of the, the refulgence, the splendor, the lovely aura which surrounds these blessings with even more allure. I was laying in bed the other day and I thought to myself, why am I so cozy and so warm? It's a good time for self-reflection. <laughs> Certainly the bed beneath, the blankets on top, the pillow beneath my head, they all had something to do with it, but they weren't the warmth and the coziness themselves. It was something else. That was something greater than the sum of those parts. It was the splendor of the three bearing down upon chilly me. <laughs> As logs, fire, and oxygen generate warmth but are not the warmth, bed, blankets, pillow generate snugness but are not the snugness. In a similar way, these choice blessings, justification, adoption, sanctification, generate the snugness of these five blessings beside. We can take one step further and highlight that none of these blessings or their refulgence comes to us anywhere other than in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always worth remembering, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, it is always Christ clothed with his gospel, Christ clothed with his salvation that he brings, Christ clothed 
clothed with the benefits divine, who is the object of our faith. Our justification, our sanctification, our adoption are gifts. They're given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So also the luster of these saving benefits shines forth plainly in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, turned favorably towards sinner. For he is God's love displayed, assurance of God's love. He himself is our peace, our peace peace of conscience. He himself is our joy, increase in joy. In him we have all received grace upon grace, increase of grace. And he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Perseverance therein unto the end. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fount of every blessing. If we can consider this first blessing beside and that all too briefly, the assurance of God's love. First, does God want you to know that he loves you? The poor word love, poor word love, sentimentalized, run over by tractor trailers. It means almost nothing anymore. It's a feeling, it's a sentiment. One can fall in and out of love. Metaphors are fun. <laughs> you fall in love, you fall out of love. The notion of love is something different than a mere passing fancy. A mere pleasantness in which one is willing to exist for a time. Sort of pedestrian definition of love. Love is the willingness to be harmed so that good may come to another. You say just willingness to be inconvenienced so that good may come to another. There's some sort of rendering, there's some sort of giving of the self that's involved in love. I mean, you've grappled with it, it's a profound word, love. Certainly that is the divine love. The divine love, that otherworldly love, is on display in the bearing of curse in the beloved Son, so that blessing comes unto an enemy. That is a love supreme. The divine loves excelling all others. Does God want you to know his love? Does God want you to be sure of his love, that you are a participant in his love? Even just a cursory glance at scripture seems to suggest yes. From the very beginning when man fell, <laughs> when the very terms of the covenant that he had just broken seemed to demand his immediate destruction, he's clothed. And he's given a promise. That's remarkable. And you continue in the history of Israel, and it's over and over and over again. God's showcasing this favor, this patience, this benevolence, not to the neutral. Deuteronomy says it multiple times look, it's not because you're good that I'm doing this. You're just as stiff necked as everyone else. 
When I displace these people and plant you there, you're going to be tempted to think it's because they're worse than me. It's not that. It's because of my love. It's because of this excellency that I am, John says, mysteriously. God is love. The plain suggestion of Scripture is that God delights to showcase his love. And he delights when his people rest in that love. Clearly this extends itself from the simple metaphors that Scripture supplies us for who God is as Father and who Christ is as husband, as we highlighted in the introduction. There's a certain reasoning from the lesser to the greater. If, if, if we desire... Those whom we love to know that we love them, as imperfect as that love is. Whether it's spouse or whether it's children, is it illegitimate to move from the lesser to the greater? Doesn't Christ do that? He invites us to see this broken thing that is family, whether it's husband and wife or parents and children. He invites you to squint and see the goodness of God on display in there. And then he blows it up and he polishes it off. He says, to a perfect degree, this meaningfully communicates who God is. As a father has compassion upon his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him. Just those metaphors itself would seem to suggest, okay, he wants us to know. He doesn't want this state of uncertainty, this suspended state. Does he? Doesn't he? Does he? Doesn't he? How absurd would it be for a woman to go back to her parents after receiving a proposal and complain to the parents, I'm not sure that he loves me. He proposed! <laughs> he proposed to you! He, he, he clearly wants you to know something. <laughs> but we get confused over this, and not without reason. So where do we look when we see the excellencies of God's love display? The unequivocal answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we read in 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or very similar, John again in his Gospel, 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Paul says something very similar just a few verses later in Romans 5. God shows the divine love in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. D.A. Carson makes the very reasonable point that the John 3.16 passage is juxtaposing the object with that which God extends. What comes to mind when we hear world? Why is this such a plain testimony of the excellencies of the divine love? To bestow love to the world, to give that which is most precious to the world. What is the world? The world is that which is opposed to God. The world is that which has set itself up against God. The excellencies of the divine love is that the divine Son, the Son, the beloved Son, was given over for those. I wouldn't give up my Son for a friend. Would you? 
Would any of you? We're praying for the grandchildren. Wouldn't give up my grandchild. I have grandkids. I know some of you think I'm old. I'm not that old. <laughs> my future grandchildren, Lord willing, wouldn't give them up for a friend. The most excellent one who has ever been was given over to stand in the stead of enemies. Why would we doubt the Father's benevolence towards sinners? Why would we entertain suspicion that somehow he is not benevolent beyond understanding in the giving of the beloved Son? John says, God so loved the world. It means he loves sinners. And that's worth pointing out because it's one of the chief objections the devil will place in the heart of those who are stricken with sin. God would never love you. You are hideous. You are foul. You are corrupt. You are a constant failure and disappointment. To which scripture says plainly, indeed, I am all those things and worse. But God shows his own love in this. That he gives his son for sinners. Surely the almighty, the omniscient, the maker of heaven and earth has a clearer glimpse of my wretchedness than you do, deceiver. Or than I do or will in this world. In fact, who knows the extent of my sin better than the one who bore it? And yet we entertain this thought. He doesn't know. There's no way he could know that I'm this bad. There's no way he could know I'm this broken. There's no way he could know these dark thoughts pass my mind with this regular, that which would make even a sinner blush. There's no way he could know. There's no way he could know what I did. Look, he knows. Christ knows. The heinousness of our sin is on display in the cross. The Lord of glory had to die. And this he did willingly. Laying down his life for his sheep. Laying down his life for his wife. Hazard no doubt over the infinite nature of God's love for sinners. But that's not the only objection. There... When talking about assurance, there is an objective element and there is a subjective element. The objective element, beyond plain. I hope you see that. God shows his love for us in this. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Objectively. You want to know if God is love? Look at the cross. Look at the incarnation. Look at the, look at the Christ event. Look at it. That is unequivocally... The most supreme and plain demonstration that God is love. That's what John says in 1 John 4. But that's not the only objection. The other objection is, how do I know I'm a participant? Can I know that I have a share in this? And this is the subjective coordinate to this question. Because we're not asking, when it comes to assurance... Am I saved? Not technically. Technically, we're asking when it comes to assurance, do I know I'm saved? Can I be sure that I'm 
saved. It's called the self, or it's called the reflexive act of faith. And those are the other elements that open up, and you heard them here. We can be sure of God's love if we have signs of life. That's what Paul is here rehearsing. Notice the signs of life in the passage we read. Some of the signs of life. Faith. Hope. Love. Endurance in trial. There's something different going on here. Because think about what trial produces ordinarily. Think about what adversity produces ordinarily. Best case scenario, adversity produces a sort of resilience, right? But that resilience is pretty intimately bound up, and we even use this in our metaphorical language, with hardness. There's a callousness about it, right? That's what adversity can be. Best case scenario, left to the natural devices of man, perhaps adversity generates a sort of callous toughness, resilience. Most of the time it generates what? Cruelty, which isn't that unrelated to hardness, interestingly. Pride, fist shaking at heaven. This is a portrait of the earth in Revelation. Wave after wave of judgment washes over the earth. And you'll note John, Mark, and they did not repent or turn. They did not repent or turn. They hardened themselves against heaven. And so one of the indicators that something different is going on, one of the indicators that you're a participant in God's love, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You take him at his word. This goes back to Matthew, right? Look, no one says Jesus is Lord. No one says that you are the Christ unless it's been revealed from heaven. Okay, you, you got a pulse. Yeah, I mean, my faith's not super strong, but I believe. Great! <laughs> You're a partaker in something extraordinary. Something not confined to the natural course of this world. Hope. Not this vague anticipation that things are going to work out okay. But rather a certainty based upon God's word that it will be well. Come what may. Love. That cruelty, that selective kindness is displaced and replaced. By something different altogether. This is 1 John. How do we know that we've passed from death to life? We love the brothers. All those who have been born again love those who have been born from the Father. There's something unique about love in the life of the believer that indicates that they've made, been made a participant in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're married, I trust you don't have to just guess at the fact that you're married. I trust there are signs that you're married. Maybe you can look down at your finger and see a ring. Maybe you wake up and there's the other person every morning. <laughs> but it's not just those external signs. It's also you find your life taking a new orbit. 
where previously the lone determining factor was, well, what do I want to do? The Lord in his kindness has given a common grace institution that really makes it necessary, <laughs> even if you're not a believer, really makes it necessary to start asking, well, what does the other person want? That displacement of self indicating, okay, something different's going on. I don't just get on a plane and go to Ukraine anymore. My wife would be upset. I can't do that. I'm married. In a similar way, there are signs of life. Mark it. Many of us wandered, drank deeply from darkness. Mark it. Mark it. You can see it. It might not always be easy to see, but you can see it. For those of you who didn't, who have been kept and have just grown in a quiet maturing of your faith, rejoice and mark it. Mark that you've grown. Maybe it's quiet. Maybe it's not all that remarkable. But guess what? That's what marriage is too. Marriage isn't like the movies. Where you get to the high point where you're like, yeah, let's get married. And then like they don't show it anymore. It's like, okay, well then we're just going to be up with sick kids in the middle of the night and really want to sleep. That's marriage. It's like Tolstoy and Anna Karenina here, but I'll spare you. <laughs> the loveliness of being tried. You heard it in Psalm 119. Your testimonies are well tried. They are my delight. You can mark it. Celebrated a baptism this morning at City Life and had the occasion to encourage the congregation to mark your baptism. Mark if the Lord hasn't been faithful to you all these years. Mark if you haven't shown yourself to be not so great a spouse, and yet he has not cast you off. Mark his love. Mark that it has a particularity to it. This is what Paul says astonishingly in Galatians 2.20. It's not just that he died for us when we were enemies. He says, the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Christ went to the cross for you. It is astonishingly particular. He loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the object of my faith. The objective display of God's love is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those subjective elements start to emerge. Faith, hope, love, signs of life, all of which work together to bear witness that indeed you are a participant in this love. But we're not even left just to that because the Spirit is mysteriously active in this as well. And that's what verse 5 says. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit's role in this is mysterious, as are all of the Spirit's operation. Again, Christ says this plainly in John 3. You don't understand the Spirit. The wind blows where it wills. It's mysterious. It's, you see it by its effects. You see the Spirit by its effects. It's not easy for you to get your mind around because you're in the body. You're in the flesh. You think that this is all there is. There are worlds beyond worlds that are right next door to us. You don't get it, though. 
You're not going to get it, though. And that's okay now, mostly. But this is the one by whom you're walking. Walk by the Spirit. Gratify not the desires of the flesh. The Spirit is intimately bound up with this reality of being made a partaker in the Father's love, being made a partaker in the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing testimony to the fact that, we're being made, that we have been made partakers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's good news because it means that we're not just left to our own devices in this. Because as we've pointed out before, it's hard to get a proper handle on this, isn't it? And so to know that there is one who is working in this way for us, in that mysterious register, in that mysterious way, when it comes to the spiritual life of man, is great encouragement to us. And it also bears testimony once more to the fact that God delights for us to know that he loves us. But lest we drive too thick of a wedge between the Spirit's activity and that which is a little bit more accessible to us, mark once more the ministry of the church. For this is where the Spirit is active. We don't expect to meet the Spirit in these mysterious places. You don't got to scale the heights to meet the Spirit. You don't got to go into a sort of cleft of the rock like Elijah did. The Spirit ministers here, now, this, this is the Spirit. We talked about the intimacy of the Spirit and the truth, pressing that word upon our hearts, using the ministry of the word. So we can point out, I would never invite you to think too much of this, but I also don't want you to think too little of this. If you're a member in good standing at a church, that's not nothing. Have we succumbed to that notion that somehow the church doesn't have the keys of the kingdom? That it's not through the ministry of the word and the ministry of those servants whom Christ has set up over the house where heaven is open and closed as this word is ministered? That means if you are a member in good standing, it's not nothing. And it also means that as you come to this table as a member in good standing, you have every week confirmed before you in the plainest terms and conditions. The excellencies of the Father's love on display. In weddings, we mark anniversaries as an opportunity to look back and look forward. Some years rougher than others. And then the accumulated mass starts to get a little bit impressive. Samantha and I are going to celebrate 12, ye 12 years this December. You sort of blink. And you're like, yeah, this is great. All right, this thing's got some legs to it. <laughs> it's got some substance to it. It's been tried. It's not just a commemoration at the table, but it's not less than that either. This relationship has been tried. He continually sustains me. He continually intercedes for me. He continually supplies for me. He continually proves himself faithful to do the things that he is going to do. And we taste it. We see it. We taste it. 
our hearts are broken, and then they're re-knit together because every week we're confirmed with the very things that we've been talking about. God's love extended not to the worthy, but to the unworthy. God's love extended not to the deserving, but to the undeserving. God's love extended to sinners, and yet that love doing something. Not leaving in the utter squalor of sin and darkness, but continually bringing near. And it is in the nearness that the glory begins to shine forth on other faces. It's in the nearness that the transformation to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, love continually takes shape. As week in after week out, we have pressed upon our hearts an otherworldly love bestowed freely to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I pray you can take rest in this. I pray you know the excellencies of the Father's love on display in the Son. And believing in Him, I pray that you are secure in the most excellent of loves conceivable. Let's pray. What wondrous love is this? Father, we ask to think rightly about these things. We are indeed prone to error in so many ways. Your word is a light and a lamp, even in this, Father. And we rejoice that you do not leave us to our own devices. The Spirit ministers to us in these things, operating on us and in us. In ways that we do not now understand, but one day we will and we rejoice at the day of revelation, which has been promised unto us. Marvel our hearts at the excellencies of Christ. Teach us, Lord, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to make our calling and election sure. Sustain us as we do, that we might know the excellencies of your love. And walk in the confidence that is appropriate to children, appropriate to the beloved. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.